Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. The Prime Minister spoke earlier on today and uh, offered uh, more aid, and this time for uh, research and that going into sort of three different areas, vaccine, uh, trials, and then testing. Here's what the Prime Minister had to say about the money that's going to roll out for research on COVID-19. Under this plan... We're investing close to $115 million for research into vaccines and treatments being developed in hospitals and universities across the country. This is on top of the funding we've already provided to support vaccine development in Canada. The second pillar of the plan is to make sure that once we have potential vaccines and treatments, we can test a wide range of options. Under this plan, we will invest over $662 million for clinical trials led by Canada. We're investing $350 million to expand national testing and modelling of COVID-19. This includes creating the COVID-19 Immunity Task Force. The task force will operate under the direction of a leadership group which will include Dr. David Naylor, Dr. Catherine Hankins, Dr. Tim Evans, Dr. Teresa Tam and Dr. Mona Nienor. We are bringing together top health experts and scientists from leaning institutions across the country. Canada's best and brightest will be working on serology testing, blood testing, to track and understand immunity to COVID-19. They'll be looking at key questions like how many people beyond those we've already tested have had COVID-19, whether you're immune once you've had it, and if so, how long that lasts. Over two years, we will be testing at least a million Canadians as a part of this study. The findings of the research will help with everything from rollouts of a potential vaccine to determining which public health measures are most effective going forward. All right, uh, lots and lots of chatter at this point as we have, it it appears, reached the peak, rounded the top of this curve, and then uh, uh, on the way down. But but again, reinforcing that we have to keep doing what we're doing. We we, the backside of this curve is is just as 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 deadly as as the front side of this curve is, and we have to keep going with the measures that we're going until we are out of the woods. The the prime minister also uh, reiterating that life will not get completely back to normal until there is a vaccine hence the money for the research and such and then once uh but prior obviously prior to that we can slowly start to reopen things um but again very slowly very gradually and as more testing uh becomes available so again it's it's a tough position for for politicians to be in right now because again as soon as we do see that little glimmer of hope all of a sudden everybody all right open the doors let's go and 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 again it's time to be cautiously optimistic uh but it's not a free-for-all yet how do we go about doing all of this and balancing it let's bring in peter gray professor of political science mcmaster university peter thank you so much for the time hope you're doing well during this time i'm doing my best I, I hear you. We get the same answer from pretty much everybody. Uh, Peter, obviously, uh, lots of chatter in the last week or so about the modeling and how we're sort of starting to see the glimmer of hope. And, uh, you know, I guess with that optimism uh, comes all the questions about how we're going to do this, when we're going to do this. We're hearing politicians start to talk about uh, plans being made uh, in order to gradually get out of this. But, uh, you know, from a, from a political science uh, standpoint, how does a politician balance the hope, the optimism that people want to hear with, hang on, we just can't swing the doors wide open? 
Yeah, I mean, I think in this case they're all gambling, right? We we you know we don't yeah. really know very much about the COVID nineteen and, and the coronavirus in terms of precisely those questions that Trudeau was asking about. You know, how many people have been uh, infected? Is it many, like some people say, or not that many, as others say? Uh, if you have been, do you have immunity? I mean, these things are important in making decisions about. Uh, reopening, or even questions about a seasonal effect, whether we get hot weather and it will, you know, slow the transmission. So if we don't know these things, I think the politicians are left with a situation where, uh, you know, if they go too early and open up too quickly to the point where, you know, you see a rapid spread again and they have to shut down again, they look bad. But if they're the last to reopen and there's a sort of an economic consequence to that, other places uh, reopening uh, more quickly, then, you know, they look bad that way too. So I think, you know, politicians in this case are kind of risk averse, but they don't know really what the, the right solution is. Um, I think in most cases it's a gamble, but uh, I think in the case of Canada in particular, most of our politicians are willing to, you know, uh, err on the side of being a bit slower and more cautious and listening to the public health officials who will probably mostly say go more slowly uh, you know, in some other countries, uh, politicians have been maybe making a bit more risky gambles about going sooner. And when you think about this, an interesting choice of word using gamble, but really there is no prize for being first here, is there? No, I mean, not really. I mean, particularly the extent that there's a pretty, you know, large global shutdown of the economy. So being first back maybe doesn't produce a whole lot of benefits. Uh, I mean, I mean, I think in the the case of Canada, where uh, I don't know if it's lucky or unlucky, but certainly a number of European countries seem to be a bit further along the curve. We can also look to the experiences in South Korea, uh, Taiwan, and get a sense of uh, how they reopened. And so there are at least a few things people can learn from in terms of what seems to have worked and what kinds of forms of control uh, are necessary to maintain, you know, again, if you want to open up successfully without having to close again. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, do you think somebody will be first to do this? Uh, again, I, I can't see anybody jumping in line. It certainly looks like uh, Saskatchewan might be the first province to start relaxing. Things are going to announce later on today. Uh, what their phase-in plan is, um, but but again, I, I find it fascinating because what most people are, what most officials, leaders are doing now is is coming up with that plan. I mean, on the other side of the curve, on the front side of this curve, it was how do we handle this? How do we ramp up the supplies? How do we uh, make sure the hospitals aren't overcrowded and such? And then on the back side of the curve, uh, the plan to open this is just as sensitive as the one on the way up, is it not? I think so. Uh, I mean, I think in the case of Canada, though, we have, uh, you know, we look at the Canadian numbers, but in fact, you know, the spread of uh, the spread of this is quite uh, different across the provinces. So as you point out, Saskatchewan has been relatively fortunate. They may have a, an opportunity to, uh, you know, relax some of the restrictions uh, earlier, although it depends also on their capacity to control their borders, uh, because, you know, they're still pretty strong. Uh, presence of the virus in Alberta, and uh, you wouldn't necessarily want to see it imported. So, I mean, I think there are ways in which, you know, the the geography of it uh, may be important. Uh, for someone like Doug Ford, when you look at the d- dispersion around Ontario, where, you know, Toronto and the GTA is a huge hotspot, but in many other parts of the province, uh, very uh, small numbers of cases, even there, is there a way that in parts of the province, 
you know, even some things like being able to reopen dentists and you know, a few things like that. Uh, mm. um, you know, would there be you know an option to do that, or do you have to go for Ontario as a whole? In which case, large parts of the province, at least geographically, are waiting for us here in the GTA H uh, to find a way of reducing the spread in our community. How much do you think uh, will this um, depend on testing? Um, you know, we've heard the prime minister say that. Uh, until the more testing is available, but my goodness, unless you're at the point where testing, you're going to test everybody. How do you manage that? Yeah, I mean, and I'm not I'm expert on what's been done in places like South Korea, but I mean, uh, you know, it's a mixture of the testing, but then also being able to trace contacts when people test positive, so that you can prevent a, a, re- a reemergence of an outbreak. You know, and so you know, part of it is a testing, but part of it too is, and I think you're going to be talking about this later today, is the questions of how far are we willing to allow ourselves be to be traced in terms of, you know, giving up our data of, you know, where we're at with our cell phones and, you know, them using uh, different ways of seeing, well, who did you walk close to and so on, using that kind of data. So, I mean, again, testing is part of the story, but then how that is connected to things like a capacity to trace contacts, you know, will be quite will be quite significant in terms of, of opening it up and having, and at least giving, uh, again, the public health authorities and the politicians a sense of, knowing what's happening, whether, you know, cases are going to spike upwards or whether, in fact, uh, the opening of the, the economy or the opening of various services is, in fact, uh, proceeding without problem. Do you think Canada or, or North America is at the point right now where they're willing to allow, uh, allow cell phone technology to be helped in, 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 in fighting this, this disease? You talked about South Korea, a perfect example of, of them telling people where they can and can't go and when they're in and outside of zones and, and such. Will we be having this discussion a month from now about whether we should be using this or not? Uh, probably. I mean, uh, again, without being an expert on, uh, you know, public opinion on these things, I would, I would have the sense that Canadians would be more skeptical of allowing the sharing of that data, even if probably that already happens without us knowing about it in various ways. Mm. Um, but again, uh, you know, that's in the, the abstract. When you begin asking people, well, if it would allow you to go about, you know, to be able to go back to work, uh, to, you know, be able to resume earning an income, to be able to allow your kids to go back to school, but if it became contingent on, on getting a number of those things done, then I suspect people's views about their loss of privacy or their fears about being tracked by the government uh, might soften. Do you think we're going to see the same debate, Peter, around a vaccine when it comes out? I mean, right now the, the Prime Minister is saying, and, and many are saying, that life will not get back to normal until we do have some sort of medication or vaccine for this. But we, we certainly know that there's... Uh, anti-vaxxers out there that, that don't want anything to do with this. Uh, do you think? How do you think the public's going to react to a mass vaccination, for example? Uh, I suspect the vast majority will uh, be favorable to it. Um, uh, I mean, the number of people who are really against vaccines. I mean, there's people like me who don't like a needle, but we'll go and get it. Um, mm. But you know, the number the people who are against vaccines will probably still be against it. Uh, I think what might change is the point of view of the majority of the society. Uh, around mandatory vaccination, where in recent years, maybe outside of places like New Brunswick, where they've really come on strong in the past year, there's been a sense that if people don't vaccinate their kids, it's not the end of the world. Um, I think we may begin to have a different view. I mean, this is a a vision of a world without vaccines and uh, what the impact might be. And so I think the majority may begin to say that as much as they respect people's, you know, desire not to be forced to be vaccinated, uh, 
you know, the collective good may require a stronger view on mandatory vaccination. Uh, initially, we, you know, and, and I, I, well, I don't, I don't even want to go into what the President of the United States says, but there has certainly been questions from other allies uh, in regard to the World Health Organization, and including from our own government, on, on their handling of all of this. Um, is the World Health Organization should, I guess, like everything, be scrutinized after this is over? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't think we'll find a single organization or government that will escape some criticism. Uh, I mean, responding to a crisis, uh, you're going to make some wrong decisions. You're going to have over overlooked some things. There will be some errors in terms of things that uh, should have been prepared for over the long haul that we, we haven't dealt with. And then people have to decide how much of these things you can really place at people's feet or, you know, how many unknowns do you not, you know, not know are actually there. I mean, the World Health Organization, like many UN agencies, I think has its own difficulties uh, in terms of forms of patronage and corruption within it. On the other hand, uh, was quite successful at alerting the world community at an early stage of what was going on and did its best to share the information it was able to, to get its hands on. So... I think there will be things that, where we'll find shortcomings in terms of, of how they played their role, um, some shortcomings that are probably understandable even from the political challenges of the WHO, you know, in terms of how it worries uh, the U.S. is going to respond to what it does and it worries what China is going to do in other countries. But, uh, you know, again, a, a kind of a black or white assessment of it I think would also miss uh, the importance of what it was able to do. And, again, if we don't like the WHO, Presumably, we'll need a replacement to be able to organize uh, concerted international action on pandemics such as this. So even if we we find fault in the WHO, I don't think we can fall back just to having a series of national public health agencies without some forms of global cooperation and sharing of information if we want to, to deal with these pandemics, which ultimately you know, don't fit neatly within national boxes. Peter Grant has been with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. Peter, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. And you too. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.